0: Chapter forty three of the Story of the World A Simple History for Boys and Girls. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by T. R. Love, of Pleasant Hill, California. The Story of the World A Simple History for Boys and Girls, by Elizabeth O'Neill. Chapter forty three. THE FRENCH REVOLUTION A few years after the French had helped the United States of America to win their independence, the French nation itself began a great struggle for freedom. This struggle is the most important thing which has happened in modern times. It is called the French Revolution. All through the 18th century, France was becoming more and more in need of money, the wars of Louis the Fourteenth had cost the nation a great deal. Still, Louis had left his country great. But his great grandson, Louis the Fifteenth, who ruled after him, was very different. He lived a very bad life, and under him the French wars resulted only in losses. As we have seen, France lost India and Canada. The nation grew more and more dissatisfied. The people had not complained of having an absolute king when he had led them to victory, but now things were different. In some parts of France, the peasants were very poor, though there were very few who were not free. It is often said that it was the terrible poverty of the peasants which brought about the French Revolution, but this is not true. The peasants in many of the German states in Poland and in Russia were in a far worse state, for in those countries they were still serfs like the peasants in England in the early Middle Ages. They could not leave their villages or marry unless their lords allowed them to, and they still had to work several days each week on their lords' lands as in the early days of feudalism. Still, though the French peasants were free, they were poor. The French people had to pay great taxes at this time, and it made many of them very angry that the nobles had not to pay any at all. There was a large middle class in France, men who were educated. It was from among these that the leaders of the revolution came. Louis the Fifteenth died in seventeen seventy four, and his grandson, Louis the Sixteenth, who was only twenty, became King of France. He had been married four years before to Marie Antoinette, a beautiful young princess, and the youngest of sixteen children of Maria Theresa. The queen was a year younger than Louis. Louis the Sixteenth was quite different from his grandfather. He was a good and very religious man, but he was not a great king. He did not understand the troubles of France and was not strong enough in character to face the difficulties of his position. Marie Antoinette was at first very merry. She seemed, to the French people who saw her driving through the streets of Paris, heartless and vain. But she was only a girl. The French never liked her, and she herself never forgot that she was an Austrian but she, too, showed herself very brave, and she was always a good woman. The American Revolution, with its declaration of the rights of man, seemed a very splendid thing to many of the French. Many French soldiers and officers went over and helped the Americans against the English. Among them was a young French nobleman, the Marquis of Lafayette, who was one of the leaders in the French Revolution afterwards. Men like these thought that France, too, might become happy and free and rich again if her people were allowed power in the government. The old French parliament, which was called the States General, had not met for one hundred and seventy five years, when Louis the sixteenth. was persuaded to let it meet again on the first of May, seventeen eighty nine. All France was full of joy. The people thought that a new time would commence when France had its parliament like England or America. They forgot that, even when nearly 200 years before the states general had been called by French kings, it had had very little real power. All over France, the people were busy electing their representatives. There were three divisions of the states general, the nobles, the clergy or priests, and the tier etat, or third estate, representing the people. They were to meet at the Palace of Versailles, and on the day they assembled, the 600 members of the tir etat walked in procession, dressed in black. Behind them walked the nobles, dressed in bright-colored silks and velvets, and behind them again the king and queen and the people of their court. The people cheered the third estate and were silent as the nobles passed, for it was from the third estate, the representatives of the people, that they hoped all good things would come. They cheered the king, too, but grew quiet and sullen again as the queen passed. But she made no sign, only looking up to the balcony where her eldest boy, the little eight-year-old Dauphin, who was dying, was propped up to see the procession. Before a month was over, the little boy was dead, and his younger brother was now the Dauphine. Marie Antoinette shut herself up for a day, and then came bravely out again, for there were signs of trouble in this wonderful new French Parliament. The king, in his speech at the first meeting, had told the States General that they must decide among themselves whether the three orders of nobles, clergy, and the Tireta should sit together as one house or meet and vote separately. Everyone knew that the nobles and the higher clergy would not be as willing to make great changes in the government as the Tireta would be it would mean that the two votes of nobles and clergy would make the vote of the tier etat useless so the tier etat declared that the three orders must vote together some of the clergy joined them but the nobles would not then the tier etat with the clergy who had joined them declared that they were the representatives of the nation and gave themselves the new name of the national assembly They said that the nobles could join them if they liked, and the king could give his consent if he liked, but that it really didn't matter. The queen advised the king to resist, and an order was given that the hall in which the assembly had been meeting should be closed, and that there should be no more meetings until a day when the king was to be present. When the assembly found the door of the hall closed, they refused to break up but held their meeting in a tennis court nearby. Here, they took the famous oath that they would never separate until they had given France a constitution, by which they meant a government in which the people had some part. Louis tried to insist that the orders should vote separately, but it was no use. At Versailles and at Paris, the people were growing angry, and the king had to give way. In Paris, bread was dear, and there were many strangers in the city. The feeling of disorder spread, and the common people in the streets became very rough and violent. There were many men of the middle class in Paris, like the lawyer Danton, who were anxious to get rid of the king and make changes which the assembly had not yet thought of. 300 men had been chosen to select the representatives of the people of Paris in the States General. These 300 now made themselves the rulers of Paris. They began to collect soldiers to guard the city. Many of the roughest people joined this guard, which really became an army ready to fight the king. It was called the National Guard. The Hotel des Invalides, the home of the old soldiers, was attacked and guns and powder carried off. Then the old prison of the Bastille was attacked. Here was a great quantity of powder and only the governor and a few men to defend it. In a few hours they gave up the prison, but were killed as they marched out. The news of the taking of the Bastille spread over Europe, and people understood that this was a real revolution. Marie Antoinette begged the king to flee away from France with her and her children until this dreadful time should be over, but other people advised him to stay. But many French nobles fled from France to safety, the first of many émigrés who were to follow them in the next few years. The excitement spread all over France. In many of the country districts, the peasants rose, murdered the Seigneurs, or lords of the land, or drove them away from their castles. They took the land for themselves, and much of the beautiful furniture in the castles was destroyed. Louis made up his mind to go to Paris, and did so. Lafayette rode before him on a white horse, and all along the road the people shouted, Long live the nation! It was only when the king, pale and anxious, stuck the new colors of the revolution red, white, and blue, in his hat that they shouted, Long live the king! Then Louis went back to Versailles where the queen was weeping and praying for his safety. But it was not long before the king was back in Paris again. A terrible mob of people poured out from the city to Versailles. Lafayette followed them with some soldiers of the National Guard. The mob broke into the palace, and even into the queen's room, but she had fled to her husband's. Lafayette drove the mob from the palace, but still they shrieked and howled to see the king, and Louis stepped out on a balcony for all to see. Then louder cries came for the queen, and she stepped out with her children, the only two left to her, her daughter and the six-year-old Dauphine but the crowd cried angrily that they did not want any children, and the queen signed to them to go back from the balcony. She stood there looking bravely down at the crowd. One man pointed a gun towards her, but did not fire. Lafayette stepped out on the balcony and kissed her hand. He was very sad now, for the revolution from which he had hoped so much— was becoming a very different thing from what he had expected. The angry mob still shrieked that their king should go to Paris, and the royal family was led by the crowd to the palace of the Tuileries, where they lived for the next two years. The queen, always with her children, frightened to go beyond the gardens of the palace, the king, listening to information about the doings of the assembly, giving his consent to what he could, refusing when his conscience told him a thing was wrong. The assembly upset all the old arrangements in France. They did away with the old provinces and divided the country up into districts. Committees were sent out to rule these, but all were under the assembly. But there was so much disorder that the taxes could not be collected. The assembly was in great need of money, There were many men in it who did not believe in any religion at all, and they thought it would be an excellent plan to take the property of the church for themselves. They did so, and the clergy were then paid wages by the state. At the same time, they said that the French church should no longer be under the Pope. To these things Louis could not agree. At last, in despair, he agreed with the queen that the best thing to do would be to try to escape. Count Fersen, who was a great friend of the queen's, brought them clothes to disguise themselves. The king was to be dressed plainly like a manservant, and the queen as a governess, traveling with the two children. The dauphin was put into girls' clothes, and his sister, who was the only one of the family who lived through the revolution, said that he looked beautiful. They stole quietly out at ten o'clock one night to where a coach was waiting for them. Count Fersen was the coachman. Outside Paris, another coach waited for them with a German coachman, but things went wrong. The horses fell down, and it took an hour to mend the harness. They missed a third carriage, which was to meet them, and then a man named Drouet recognized the king. The coach rolled on, but Tourette and an innkeeper took horses and raced it to her There, the royal family was stopped, just as they were practically saved. The next day, they were taken back to the tuileries again. The king was suspended for a time. That is, the assembly said that he should not have the position of king, but in a short time, he was recognized as king once more. He gave his consent to the constitution, which left him very little power, and then the National Assembly, having done its work, broke up. But things in France were now in hopeless disorder. A new parliament was to meet, to which none of the members of the Assembly were to belong. New men, with no experience, were to rule the country." the king and queen were always hoping that the emperor of Austria and the other kings of Europe would come to help them. They only agreed to the laws which were passed, thinking that in a short time foreign armies would come and free them, and all would be as it had been before in France. At last, the armies did march towards France, the armies of Austria and Prussia. Leopold, the emperor, was the brother of Marie Antoinette. Maria Theresa was now dead, but Leopold died just at this time, and his son was not so well able to help his aunt. Still, after long delays, his army came. The king of Prussia sent an army, for he felt that these new things which the French were preaching everywhere were dangerous for every king in Europe. The French knew that the king and queen were riding to the other countries of Europe to help them, and the leaders of the revolution grew more and more angry, as did the Paris mob. It was the French themselves who declared war at last. All the soldiers who could be gathered together were sent off to the borders of France and the Netherlands, and the roughest men in Paris were allowed to join the National Guard. Before this, the Paris mob had broken into the jeweleries. They had stood joking roughly in the very presence of the king and queen and stuck a red cap of liberty on the head of the little Dauphine. In the end, they had gone away without doing any harm. Many people all over France were now sorry for the king and queen and kind messages poured in upon them. But once the war commenced, the most violent of the people, and the leaders, had things all their own way. Again, the mob attacked the Tuileries, and the king and queen, with their children and the king's sister, fled for safety to the hall where the assembly had its meetings. Day after day, they had to be crowded together in a small room used by newspaper reporters, and there they could hear the parliament discussing what should be done with them. At last, they were carried off to a prison in the building called the Temple in Paris. They lived here in small rooms, very different from those to which they had been used. At first, a few friends were allowed to stay with them, but later these were all sent away. Madame de Lamballe, a great friend of the Queen, was driven from the Temple into another prison. By this time, nearly all the nobles and friends of the king who had not escaped from France had been shut up in prison. In the convention, as the new parliament was called, the most violent of the revolutionaries under Marat, a madman whose one idea was a republic in which all the people should have equal power, ordered that the friends of the king in prison should be killed. A band of two hundred men went from prison to prison and murdered them. There was only one woman killed in these dreadful September massacres, as they were called. It was Marie Antoinette's friend, the Princesse de Lamballe. As Louis the Sixteenth stood staring out of the window of his prison, suddenly the head of his wife's friend was held up on a spear before his eyes. The king's first thought was to prevent the queen from seeing it, but she had seen it and fainted away. The Execution of the King A week or two later, the convention declared that France was a republic. For the future, they spoke of Louis Sixteenth as Louis Capet. He was a citizen like any other. Then, three months later, Louis was brought to trial as a public enemy he was found guilty. 361 members voted for his death and 360 against it. He was condemned to die. Already he had been separated from the Queen and his children, but they were allowed to see him the night before he died. He was very brave and quite gentle. He made the little Dauphine promise never to take revenge for his death, and then he sent them away and gave his last hours to preparation for death. The next morning, he was beheaded in a public square in Paris, assuring the great crowds who were gathered round that he died innocent. Meanwhile, the Prussians and Austrians, who had thought that they had nothing to do but march on Paris, had not been very successful. They had started too late in the season. The weather was bad, and their men fell sick. When the two armies at last fought at Valmy, they found that the French soldiers could not be driven back, and in a few days they marched out of France again. Then the French leaders at Paris were full of joy. They made up their minds to help all the peoples of Europe to set up Republics too. Their armies overran Belgium and joined it to France. Another army did the same in Savoy, on the borders of France and Italy and another conquered the German states on the Rhine. They then declared that they would attack England and help the English Republicans to set up a republic. In this, they were quite mistaken, for no one in England wanted a republic. Then came the execution of the king. Soon, France was standing alone against Europe. England, Holland, Spain, Austria, and Prussia were at war with her the people in the south and west of France rose in rebellion. In La Vendie, a district in the west of France and running along the coast south of the river Loire, the peasants rose to defend their seigneurs and their religion. They nearly drove the republicans out of the district, but now the Jacobins, the worst revolutionaries of all, got power, and what is known as the reign of terror began. Everyone who was suspected of being against the revolution was brought up before judges appointed for that purpose. There was no real trial. Practically, everyone suspected was put to death. Some were nobles, but others were mere peasants. Even girls and little children and old people were put to death. In Vendée, the revolt was put down, and people were killed in hundreds for being faithful to their lords and their church. It took too long even to behead them all with the guillotine, the great new knife machine which had been invented during the revolution, and so hundreds were thrown into the river to drown. Men who were violent, but not violent enough, were seized and condemned to death in their turn. Madame Roland, the wife of one of the leaders, had exclaimed when she was led out to die, O oh, Liberty, what crimes are committed in thy name? For in the end, she too was guillotined. But the Queen's turn had come before this. Her children had been taken from her in prison, and she too was tried and condemned to death. She was old and white before her time, and blind in one eye through the cold and damp of her last prison. For her last days were spent not even in the temple, but in the common prison. From there she was drawn, sitting on a cart, with her hands tied to be guillotined before the Paris mob. Her little boy died in prison after being treated with the greatest cruelty, but her daughter was at last sent to her mother's relations in Austria. A girl from Normandy called Charlotte Corday traveled up from the country to Paris and stabbed Marat to the heart for his cruelty. She was killed in her turn. Danton and Robespierre, great leaders of the revolution, were killed too. At last, the reign of terror came to an end. France was winning victories on all her boundaries. Now that Robespierre was gone, the people all over France asked for a complete change of government. They turned against the Jacobins, who were left, and many of these were massacred in their turn. After a time in which religion had been attacked so cruelly, the people were now again crowding to the churches. Many of the emigres came back to France. It was thought, even, that the little dauphin, who was still alive in prison, might be made king, but this was not to be. At last, a new constitution was set up. It consisted of two houses of Parliament, and at the head, five men called the Directors. But in the lower house of the new Parliament, many of the Jacobins were to sit again. There was a great deal of disorder at the elections, and a young officer called Napoleon Bonaparte was called in by Barras, the head of the government, to put down an insurrection. In this way, this young officer became important. We shall see what a great part he played in the history of France and the world in the next twenty years. End of chapter forty-three.